poet wise enough And one whole year older I should own these enough I don't love you Hello and welcome to episode 1831 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm alright, how are you? Well, I'm not Jacob deGrom, so I'm fine. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Sucks. Yeah. Jacob has a, what is it, stress fracture in his shoulder? Am I getting that right? He has a stress reaction. Stress reaction. Well, that's probably better than a fracture. Yes, considerably. (laughs) Mets fans were like, oh, no, what happened? Did it get worse? I guess a fracture is a type of reaction, but a reaction is not necessarily a fracture. Yes, a stress (laughs) reaction. Important distinction, but still bad. A stress reaction in his right scapula. Right Mm -hmm. scapula. Scapula is a funny word to say. As Jeff Passan reported it, the positive, no damage to the muscles, tendons, or ligaments in the shoulder, which is a profoundly complicated joint prone to all sorts of problems. Profoundly. Wow. (laughs) But still not good. He will be shut down for up to four weeks before he starts throwing and is reevaluated. So (sighs) he is set to miss a significant amount of time to start the season. Really, really a bummer. It is. It's not a total shocker, I guess, in that he has had a variety of injuries now going back a bit. And I guess the greater worry was his elbow, right? And (laughs) it's not his elbow. It's his shoulder. Maybe you'd rather have it be his elbow. It's not good either way. But all of my fears about DeGrom have been borne out. I was just always worried, like, he's too good. He's flying too close to the sun. He's throwing too hard <laughs> to sustain this, and he just has been breaking down constantly since then. So sucks for the Mets, obviously, and for him, and it's his contract year, too, his walk yeah. year, right? So maybe it's uh, time to sign Johnny Cueto or something, or just the time to be happy that you signed Max Scherzer and you traded yeah. for Chris Bassett already. But they have depth. But there's no replacing the best pitcher in baseball when he is on the field. So, no, there really isn't. And, you know, I think that we all acknowledged that if there was going to be an issue with this staff, it was that they have not always been uh, great at staying on the field. But, you yep. know, as people who I think enjoy being right, this is an area where we would have been quite content to be wrong. Absolutely. Well, we will be previewing the NL East next week. So I imagine that this could come up again. <laughs> but. <laughs> In the meantime, Mets fans, I guess you're used to this sort of news, but you never want to hear it. So we'll just do a quick little news roundup here because we are devoting most of this episode to emails and we will be joined by a listener and Patreon supporter, Stefan Lund, for that portion of the podcast and a stat blast as well. But quickly here, there was an interesting trade between teams whose seasons we have already previewed. So on Friday... The White Sox traded Craig Kimbrell to the Dodgers for A.J. Pollock, and then subsequently the White Sox announced that Garrett Crochet, it sounds like, will be having Tommy John surgery. So more bummer injury news, which 
it's always more of a bummer when we're like a week away from opening day or less at this point and it's like you're so close just uh preserve everyone in amber at this point like i know that they all need to get up to speed and build up their strength and everything but you're so close to just running them out there for that opening day start or the opening day lineup and then it's snatched away from them and from you and it sucks every time but This trade is kind of intriguing, right? Because, of course, Kimbrell was on the block and was a likely trade candidate. They held on to him for a while, and now now it's just a straight-up deal between contending teams for established veterans. And there's no cash in the deal. The cash kind of equalizes it's it's fairly close right because uh, they both have one year left on their deal but then Pollock has an option with a buyout after that and so if you include that guaranteed cash the money is roughly equivalent although this is one of those cases where as Ben Clemens recently wrote the the new CBA changes things slightly with this kind of deal just because of the luxury tax complications and calculations it's basically like now if you trade someone like the the competitive balance tax hit is recalculated at that point based on the remaining dollars and years in the deal. So it's not just the average annual value, but it's what is the remaining average annual value, essentially. So if a person's contract is front-loaded or back-loaded, then that could actually change the size of the luxury tax footprint for the team that is acquiring that player essentially so there are implications that you know that saves the the white Sox, i I guess a couple million here or maybe cost the dodgers a a couple million more it's not a huge thing but it's a new little wrinkle in the cba and i'll link to ben's blog if you want to see the details about that but the interesting thing i guess is just that The Dodgers allowed Kenley Jansen to leave and now are trading Pollock for a Jansen equivalent in Kimbrell, who was dominant early last season and then kind of fell apart after he was traded across town in Chicago. So I guess the Dodgers are banking on the dominant Kimbrell being back. And maybe people are questioning, well, why not just hold on to AJ Pollock and re-sign Kenley Jansen? And I guess the answer is because that would cost more money. And uh, the Dodgers are already spending a lot of money and this would have taken them over the newest and highest penalty or what the the 290 million dollar right. penalty it would have triggered the the very highest tax rate and they wanted to avoid that Yes. I have to note two things, which is that when we are discussing um, White Sox injuries, we can't say it's a bummer injury because that might (laughs) actually concern Aaron Bummer. But yes, yes, it it is an interesting trade for the reasons that you highlighted. I think that if you're Gavin Lux, you have to be thrilled, right? Because this just Mm -hmm. opens up more playing time for you on the roster. I can appreciate how Los Angeles would look at this and say, like, we are trading from surplus in much the same way that the White Sox are, although some of that surplus is obviously a bit more strained on Chicago's part now that we have this news around crochet but we we can trade from a surplus we have we cannot credibly be accused of not spending enough money no. <laughs> like <laughs> no one can level that claim against us that mm-hmm. seems like a lot this seems like a good way to address um, a bit of, of an organizational issue you can have trying and go back to really high leverage moments and be deployed as he needs to be and was to such great effect last year and then uh, and then you're gonna just continue to have a really good baseball team I feel a little bit bad I imagine that this is purely about destination and not being sure Kimbrell seems so happy to be on the Dodgers <laughs> like he just seems jack- 
jazz, which I, I imagine is not in any way an indictment of his experience in Chicago, but it's like if you're if you know that you're a, a prime trade candidate, you don't know where you're going, right? Yeah. And sometimes you go to a team that isn't as good as the Dodgers are, which, you know, would be easy since most teams aren't as good as the Dodgers are. So <laughs> it seems to make a good deal of sense from that perspective. Yeah, I don't know. The the and now I have to return to the injury thought and it being worse so close to opening day. It's like if you've gotten through most of being a character in the mist and then <laughs> you haven't reached the last ten minutes of that movie yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's I guess, you know, also Kimbrell is uh, very much a stickler for defined roles yes. and specifically a closer role in yeah, his case. And he seems to like that a great deal. It seemed like he attributed some of his lack of success with the White Sox, or at least that was a, a speculation that maybe the fact that he was not closing could have contributed to his uh, underperformance. So I don't know. You hand the closer role back to him. I don't know whether that is really the secret to his success or not. But perhaps maybe that will lead to a bounce back. And we talked on the Dodgers preview, the NLS preview, about the Dodgers depth maybe not being what it was historically. And so they are really banking on Cody Bellinger being good at baseball, which uh, has been true in the past, but has also not been true in the more recent past. And he has been struggling this spring as well. And so I I think there's some stress about, hey, Cody, I I know you tweaked your swing again, and maybe he's just getting the hang of it, but hopefully he bounces back because they are kind of counting on him. I mean, they can move Chris Taylor out to the outfield and then Lux can play some second, but you are really hoping that Cody Bellinger will be good. So (laughs) there's a, a little risk that you're taking on there but that is a a pretty stacked staff and bullpen now right and i think that there is there is risk there with bellinger but i think that we have to like risk adjust the bat there in dodgers terms because like even if cody bellinger is an absolute zero with the bat again as long as he is a capable defender it's not like the dodgers like offensive well-being hinges on cody bellinger they could they can just bat him mind then it'd be fine. Like if he yep. if he if he didn't swing, if he here's a you know, like if he just went up there and he never swung, mm-hmm. is the Dodgers lineup appreciably worse? I mean it's definitely <laughs> worse, but like does it is it worse in a way that we're worried about? Probably not. Like that might be a touch dramatic. I might be indulging in hyperbole here, but I just they can they can afford to take that risk because the downside doesn't matter. Cause it's like it's yeah. that's just like that's just I'm looking at the I'm looking at it again and you just sit there and you're like this is real like the commissioner was like yeah you can do this that's a left as I recall they did go to the NLCS last year with Cody Bellinger never hitting so yeah. <laughs> it can't be done and it's also a pretty big addition for the White Sox too because they really yes. did need a corner Des- guy despite a, a right their fielder. manager's protestations yeah, they sure did the need another outfielder I love that yeah so Larusa took some flack for a, a quote I guess earlier this week where he said that fans who wanted the White Sox to go outside the organization for another right fielder are probably not White Sox fans because White Sox fans know we have guys in this camp who can handle it which is just a very larusian obnoxious way so of putting it like unnecessarily confrontational yeah i mean like okay he's not gonna say yeah our current right fielder suck like i <laughs> i get why you say you know you you at least uh 
project confidence in your sure. internal options, sure, but it is very funny that they immediately went out and traded for Adam Hazley and then yep. went out and traded for AJ <laughs> Pollock. So White Sox front office, also not White Sox fans, evidently. He just he didn't have to put it that way. He you just know? didn't he could have, have said, to put it that way. I like way. the players we have here, you know? Like it didn't have to be you're not a White Sox fan if you think we need one, which it's pretty apparent that they did need one and clearly they thought they needed one. So come right. on. <laughs> yeah, come on. Come on. In other news, umpires are going to speak to us now. Thank so God. We've talked about this before, but it's actually happening officially now, seemingly. It, it was supposed to have happened sooner, but now it will be happening. Umpires are going to have microphones on the field, and they're going to inform the fans, both in the crowd and at home, of the progress in replay reviews. So one of the umpires, while the replay review is happening, is going to walk to one of the baselines and face the press box and make the announcement and will announce who is challenging and what is being challenged and then will relay the verdict and explain it when there is one. So this is exciting. I think this is overdue. This is good. It's good for fans to know what is happening <laughs> in the yeah. thing that they're watching. Yeah, I think that anytime you can clarify for folks who are actually in the ballpark what is going on because there is just a lot of confusion the rule book is complicated and sometimes these calls get overturned for very minute reasons that no one in the park is going to be able to see even when they show it on replay and so I just think it's it's good it's good for people there to be aware of why action on the field is unfolding the way that it is and like I I have set for myself Ben the goal of writing more this season and now I have to because like <laughs> yeah, this you just is said it out loud this is this is some real meg mm -hmm. right here so <laughs> I think it is good it is going to add a touch of time to everyone's evening but I think that for fans in ballpark to have a good understanding of what's going on rather than looking around at each other confused is mm -hmm. that's that's nothing but good yeah Sometimes even players and on-field personnel yeah. seem confused. And maybe it doesn't even have to add that much time if it's just one umpire who right. is doing this and communicating it while the other umpires are going about their business, then yeah. maybe it won't add time. So this is good. Although I do feel for the umpires in this ESPN story, I didn't even think of this, but AJ Hinch is quoted saying that several umpires had expressed nervousness about speaking publicly in Aww. that manner since it's never been part of the job. Yeah. He said, I think they're a little uncomfortable with the mechanics of it until they get to do it. And apparently umpires have been rehearsing these announcements during the spring, not in games, but I don't know, just before or after games, I guess, which is kind of funny. But I had never thought of that. Like, yeah, yeah you might have uh, public speaking anxiety because yeah. if you're an umpire, like your whole job is public and it's right there in front of millions of spectators who yeah. are often very angry at you. And so I wouldn't have thought that they would be apprehensive about this, but it is different. Like they don't have to address the crowd. So yeah, this is something slightly different. Maybe you uh, don't like the way your voice sounds or something. So right. this is an issue now. Right. Or, or like, you know, I think that there is a difference between being like surveyed at work and feeling surveilled at work and, and having to announce something with clarity in a short amount of time in like a different, in a different voice, you know, than mm -hmm. they probably use when they're like explaining something to the the bench coach or, you know, the, the guy who's standing on first. I think it's totally 
reasonable that they feel kind of itchy about it. I imagine like it'll probably fall to the the crew chief, right, to do this. It probably will be the the crew chief that has to make the announcements, right? I guess so. And unless I don't I don't know, is it important that the who is which umpires are actually on the call with New York? I don't know if it's the crew chief or whether it's the umpire who's involved in that play or I think it's generally the crew chief, but I am saying <laughs> that with confidence that is not earned. So <laughs> I'm sure that we will hear a little bit more about that in in the coming mm-hmm. days. But I imagine it'll be the crew chief that is yeah. Responsible, And so maybe that person feels a little bit more like sort of self-assured. But I will yeah. say to the to the umpires who feel nervous about it, it's understandable. And you don't want to make yourself the, the point, right? In much the same way that media doesn't. It's like this is about the call on the field. But mm-hmm. there are people whose personalities we have gotten to know, whose careers after officiating have been altered by the fact that they are like the official on the mic on NFL broadcasts. Like we have Mm -hmm. opinions about those people, which actually should make you feel as nervous, if not more nervous, but (laughs) you have the opportunity to sort of carve out for yourself a you know, an audience that, you know, maybe they they are inclined to boo you, but then they'll get to know you and they'll be like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I the like, oh, yeah. Joe, you know, that <laughs> that Joe. I know it won't be that Joe. He's retired now, but like, <laughs> yes. y- you know, like. <laughs> oh, man, he could have sung the announcements. Maybe this is why they wait. <laughs> yeah, just get Joe West. He'll he'll start singing yeah, one of his, like, his country. We can't we tracks. can't entrust yeah. <laughs> this responsibility to Joe. We need yeah. to wait until he's comfortably retired. And will we ever end up with a hot mic situation? Will we get any more asses Almost in jackpots? Yes. Yeah, you would think, right? So that's one positive wait. byproduct of this. Yeah, and maybe fantastic. they could just like designate the umpire on the crew who is most comfortable with public speaking. Could be the designated speaker like the the person who is the best orator could be the one who gets to make the announcement i don't know i don't know how they'll do it but this is a positive change i think and another new innovation that was announced this week is home run derby x you know it's like different and edgy and cool because there's an x in it so this is not quite the XFL, but it is a new version of Home Run Derby, a a dedicated Home Run Derby tournament slash potential league that was just announced run by MLB. It's going to feature a set cast of participants and there will be a global tour of four cities, London, Seoul, and Mexico City. There will be four four four-person teams. They will represent the Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox, and Cubs. I guess because they have the most international fans, I don't know, maybe it'll be rotating, but each team has one former big league star. The press release called them legends, which is a bit of a stretch in some cases. It's uh, Adrian Gonzalez, Johnny Gomes, Giovanni Soto, and Nick Swisher. I don't know if I would call Giovanni Soto a legend. Maybe he's a legend to some. but. Sure. You have those guys, and then you have on the rest of the team, it's a four-member team. So you have a woman from softball or women's baseball, a player from the minors, and a wild card. And the press release just says that the wild card will be influential content creators. I don't know Uh, if that's going to be like (laughs) streamers, uh, YouTubers. Maybe it's maybe it's podcast hosts. Maybe it's us. Maybe no, thank you. (laughs) Absolutely not. I have three opportunities a week to make a complete fool of myself. I don't need to add athletics to the endeavor. Are you crazy? 
So it's sort of a hybrid of baseball and the traditional home run derby. It's like played on a small version of a baseball field. Home plate is on a stage. The mound is on a podium. And the field is like adaptable. And then each batter gets one at bat of 25 pitches. They try to hit homers. But there is defense. So two of the opponents are in the outfield. A home run scores one point for the offense. A catch is one point for the defense. And then there are other ways to score that are sort of video game inspired, like MVP Baseball 2005 style, like aiming for targets in the infield or over the fence. So you get more points if you hit certain things. And then there's a hot streak, like five consecutive pitches where home runs and target hits count double, but a catch also counts double. So it's almost like... Banana ball in a way Maybe they're taking some inspiration from that Or just XFL Kind of just let's mess with The established way that we do these things So I don't know that I will watch this regularly I guess I'm more or less Into the idea why why not Try it it uh, requires Fewer people and Fewer resources and less space so Maybe if it catches on it could Help with the adoption of baseball and I'm all for promoting baseball in other countries And it does kind of harken back to a Discussion that I think we've had on the show about like What are the fundamental parts Of baseball like if you boil baseball down To its component elements like What do you need for something to qualify as baseball do you just need someone hitting something do you need someone pitching something does it need to be a ball and a bat like what qualifies as baseball and this is distilling it down to the point where it's still pretty baseball-y I guess but it's just a smaller scale stripped down version of it and it sounds like it could be fun I don't know why not try something yeah you know sure I don't think that this could possibly do any amount of harm like At all. It could not do Mm -hmm. any bit of harm to anything to try this. And I don't know if it'll feel amazing. I don't know if it'll be the kind of endeavor where it's like it's very participant dependent, where some teams and groupings are a lot more fun than others that I could totally see. Or I don't know if it'll be the kind of thing that just proves to be a blast and we all enjoy it. But there's no downside to trying. So just try a thing. Like we Mm -hmm. are pro the league trying stuff that that they are trying because it might be fun for people. I think we're mm-hmm. just like as an editorial policy in favor of that within reason because, you, you know, there's there's no downside to this. Just no mm-hmm. downside. Try yep. stuff. Maybe yep. it'll Maybe it'll be great. It could be great. We don't know. All for it. All right. And I should also, I guess we should uh, credit Sam Miller for suggesting yes. this or predicting this too because he wrote an article for ESPN a couple years ago, which was like an alternate future history of how Home Run Derby became the biggest sport in the country. <laughs> and I think we talked about it on the podcast too. And uh, it's kind of matching up with his timeline. I, I think he suggested that something along these lines would happen. So yep. he's a big Derby fan. I'm not quite as enthusiastic about Derby as Sam is, but uh, we're Proceeding along his timeline here, so it could happen. And I also want to ask you if you saw the Derek Jeter plaque. Did you see the Derek Jeter plaque this week, which was announced by the Yankees? The Yankees are going to honor Derek Jeter at Yankee Stadium on September 9th because uh, basically pick a day and they're honoring someone from their dynasty years in all likelihood. And they have like plaques and they have statues and busts and number retirements. So you can have one of these honors and then another honor. And so there's going to be like a Paul O'Neill thing and a Derek Jeter thing. Sure. Okay. But the Derek Jeter one, the first 40,000 fans are getting a replica of Jeter's Hall of Fame plaque. 
Does that is, look is like that Derek what, <laughs> Is that what Derek Jeter's Hall of Fame plaque looks like? Is that what his face looks like in Cooperstown? Is this his Cooperstown face? Because it doesn't match the face he's walking around in the world with. Not even a little bit, really. That's really very bad. And I feel terrible because I'm sure some artist somewhere had to work on this. Maybe they were like sketching him from memory. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It doesn't look like his face. It does not at all look like his face. And it almost, it looks like a, tombstone <laughs> more than a plaque because it does it has, look like it does look it like we are little, supposed to say like all right Peter, yeah the captain. it does right it, it says like Derek Jeter number two on a, a pedestal and then the plaque is on top of it so it's not just the plaque and it basically it looks like a headstone yeah. probably not intentional either but the bigger problem is that yeah it just does not look like Derek Jeter and I think the most common comp was the Christian Ronaldo plaque or statue from a I guess it was a statue yes. or a bust from a few years ago that everyone mocked because it didn't look like Ronaldo and I think that the artist uh, did have a hard time with being mercilessly mocked and memed on social Aww. media and I think ultimately redid the Ronaldo bust although he said he was still happy with the original but you know it didn't look like Ronaldo it didn't really look like a person and this does not look like cheater and again you would think at some point in the process people would look at that and uh, uh, compare to <laughs> Derek Cheater's face like I'm sympathetic I mean it's hard it must, yeah I couldn't do it I couldn't do it on a piece of paper let alone like in bronze or whatever yeah, so like really not you know, you know I think that a not small part of what is throwing me off here is like the like the nose yeah it's really wrong yeah it's like I mean the whole thing is wrong it's just like it's quite <laughs> wrong the proportions seem incorrect <laughs> I yeah I don't that makes it I don't know what he looks like, but it's not Derek Jeter. It is very funny that it looks like a tombstone. Like the the Mariners did an Edgar Hall of Fame plaque giveaway, or maybe it was Griffey. I can't remember. It was one of the two. And and I think that perhaps in anticipation of of someone saying, Hey, are you trying to bury these very alive people in, in your giveaway here? <laughs> yeah. What they decided to do was they gave people like a little easel. And so you just put the plaque on a little easel when you got it home so Uh that it didn't look like you had murdered an important member of your franchise. I just sent you a link to a picture of his actual Hall of Fame plaque, and it is not the same. (laughs) It's not the same (gasps) face. See, that looks a lot more like Derek Jeter. It does. It absolutely does. In fact, it looks like Derek Jeter, but but the rest is the same? Right, it's they decided to do a replica and yet change the face to a face that looks a lot less like Derek Jeter. Is there like a copyright yeah, issue here? Yeah, they not clear the rights for this? I mean, <laughs> I guess that I am now more sympathetic to well, I feel less guilty, put it that way, because this feels to me like someone doing their best with like a, an imitation of existing art and so your your need to be kind about that is probably a lot lower <laughs> this is like a caricature artist on the jersey shore the best part is that the spacing on the wording of the plaque is the same like they maintained mm-hmm. the weird spacing that they have to to i guess not have words go on to the next line <laughs> or something yeah this is its own nightmare that we won't spend too much time on but yeah it's- that is not the same no. 
placket. It's not until September 9th is this day, so they do have time to redo this. I don't know whether they've already manufactured the 40,000 yeah. thingies. And we know the Yankees are, you know, if not nutting these days, they are uh, definitely <laughs> watching their budget. So I don't know if they can scrap all of these bad Jeter plaques and redo them. But I don't know that I would want to display this if I were Derek Jeter or a Derek Jeter fan. It's just, it's not a great likeness. It actually, even more than the Ronaldo, it reminds me of, you know, that like fresco Yes. from like 10 years ago in yes. Spain. There's like a, a painting of Jesus and it was restored. By, it, looks uh, like an, it looks like a monkey or <laughs> yes, a werewolf. There's like or... no mouth. It's like, you know, a woman who had the best of intentions, but tried to restore it and just like basically rubbed out the face and <laughs> replaced it with something that does not look like a face or a human. It basically looks like that. So if you're not seeing this, I know that uh, this is an audio medium, but we will include the links on yeah. the show page. And like, what do I, check it what out. What I would encourage people to do if they happen to read, like, uh, you can't go back, but I wish that we could go back and tell people, like, click the link and and experience along with me that this is... Because it's just not the same face. This is a different, like, one of them looks like Derek Sanderson Jeter, the captain. And mm -hmm. the other looks like some other human, you know? Like a, a mm -hmm. not similar human. I also, so Ben, this is not the point that we are coming to here. But you know how now what Twitter will do is you'll, like, see the, you'll see the tweet and then you scroll down and it shows you like more tweets and it's like supposed to get you to follow other people. <laughs> right. So the more tweet that I'm looking at is a picture of Mike Trout, JJ Watt, Otani, oh, yeah. right. and Upton. And I just have to say, we should take a moment to appreciate what a gigantor human being JJ Watt is. Because <laughs> like when we look at Shohei Otani, we're like, you're tall and strapping. Yeah. Like you are a tall strapping guy, famously so. And then he looks like JJ Watt's like kid brother. Yeah, he really does. Football Tiny. players are huge. I mean, Trout still looks fairly big. We, yes. We've talked about how Trout has the, the football build, as everyone yes. always says. Yeah, but yeah, is. Otani, who's got like the broadest shoulders and back of anyone, he looks yeah. like spindly here. Yeah, <laughs> he sure does. So anyway, that's not the point of this segment, but it is the thing that I'm just going to be <laughs> yeah. in awe of for the rest of the day. I do love that Watt is like the biggest Otani super fan out there. It is very pure and wonderful. It's yeah, great. <laughs> it is very cool when athletes who presumably know in a much more visceral way than we do yeah. how hard all of this is are just like in awe of one another. Yes. It's very cool. Yes. And also in, in other news related to the continued splintering of baseball's product on TV or <laughs> via streaming networks, uh, the Yankees also announced that 21 of their games this year will be available only via Amazon Prime, at least locally. So if you are a Yankees fan and you want to watch these 21 games, which in the past would have been available, I think, over the air, Channel 11 WPIX, which had a longstanding relationship with the team, yeah. now you can only watch them on Amazon Prime. So you not only have to subscribe to cable and Yes Network, but you have to get Amazon Prime for these 21 games too. And they won't be on MLB TV locally. They will still, I, I believe, be yeah. available on MLB TV outside the New York market. So, you know, if you're not in New York or you're a fan of the team that is playing the Yankees, you can still watch those as part of the standard MLB TV package. But even so, you know, this is extra expense. And, and as we've talked about, like we are somewhat sympathetic to the idea of future proofing baseball yes. against continued cord cutting. 
and yeah. making it available via streaming and, and other platforms and channels and everything. But if we're just going to get to a point where everything is so fractured that you now have to pay for cable for a while and also pay for a streaming service or multiple streaming services, because, of course, there are some MLB games now that will be on Apple TV Plus and also right. on Peacock. And then you got to get MLB TV, too. So it's kind of how, like, you know, we've gone from bundling a bunch of channels together in cable to now basically bundling streaming services together. And so yes. we are now paying for cable via streaming services in a yep. sense. It's just like reorganized itself. Yep. but. This is not ideal if uh, it's getting increasingly hard, at least in the short term, to find baseball and for at least some fans in some markets to afford to watch their team. Yeah, I think that, you know, like we've talked about, there does need to be some strategy around how we're going to deal with the potential collapse of some of the RSN money. But I don't think that what we are advocating for is a solution whereby you have to sort of pick all of these different little spots and not be able to watch it. And I do think there's just like, there should be an understanding on the part of people who are figuring out these solutions that like a lot of your viewership is older. Mm -hmm. And in addition to making things hard for them when they are trying to watch stuff, you are making things hard for whatever youth they have in their life. Yes. Calls them to say, how do I find this thing? Right? Yeah. Like you, you just want the barrier to entry on all of this stuff to be really as low as possible. And so it sounds like what they should be striving for is using your already very good and robust. And we make you know, jokes about MLB TV sometimes and like sometimes it doesn't behave the way we want it to or they make feature changes that we think are wonky. But like for what you're paying relative to what you're getting, it's pretty incredible, MLB yeah. TV. Mm -hmm. And so you have this platform that already exists and can facilitate this stuff. And so it seems like the solution on the streaming side should be leveraging that in a way that, you know, allows people to have one login that allows them to watch the baseball they want to watch. And I mm -hmm. imagine that if the future of viewing baseball lies in that direction, like it will, of course, get more expensive. And so there, it isn't as if, you know, this will all remain static or as if there aren't potential accessibility issues there too. But it's just too many it's too many things to have to do yeah. if what you want is to just be able to watch your dumb Yankees. <laughs> and if you get to a point where you're cannibalizing the MLB TV package, like right. I don't know if we're there yet, but if you're taking away some Apple TV Plus games and then some Peacock games and then Sunday Night Baseball, of course, on ESPN, like if it gets to the point where it's like an appreciable portion of those games that are not available, then maybe you provide a discount or a rebate or something. I'm not holding my breath expecting that to happen, but, you know, it's a good value, I think, if you're someone who's watching baseball regularly. But if they do keep carving out games here and there and saying, no, we're cordoning off this for this platform and that for that platform, you know, that should, in theory, be reflected in the price. I don't expect yeah. it to be, but it should be. Yeah. All right. And uh, lastly, I have an update on the great MLB official Cerveza slash beer sponsorship question of 2022. As discussed earlier this week, MLB has named an official Cerveza, Corona, in addition to the official beer, Budweiser. 
and we wondered how that is possible and what sort of arrangements make that possible and does that mean that MLB will now be segmenting its sponsorships and just uh, awarding multiple sponsors within the same category and just using a word from a different language that means the same thing etc well as you pointed out in that conversation Corona is owned by the same big conglomerate that owns Budweiser, right? So Anheuser-Busch or AB InBev or ABI. However, there is another wrinkle to this, which I was not aware of. And I was informed of this by a listener named Burkhard, who is an expert on this subject. He hosts a podcast called Liquid Assets, a beverage industry podcast. And he is on Twitter at Beverage Podcast. And he messaged me to say that the Modelo Group owns Corona, Modelo, and a bunch of other Mexican beer brands. And it is owned by Anheuser-Busch ABI. However, when ABI bought SAB Miller in 2013 to 16, the FTC stipulated that in order for that deal to go through, ABI was obligated to sell the rights of Grupo Modelo brands. So the rights to those brands were bought by Constellation Brands, a company that mostly sold wine and was based in Victor, New York. So it seems as if these are different entities. So Burkhard said it is silly, but when it comes to selling rights to be the official beer versus the official cerveza of Major League Baseball, it seems way more hardcore if you are selling those rights to two different companies, which is what they did. So there was sort of an antitrust element here, and the Grupo Modelo brands are under a, a different umbrella. And He linked me to an article in the Sports Business Journal from early in March that uh, was headlined MLB splits beer category for the first time. So this was indeed big news, blew a lot of minds out there. So Anheuser-Busch renewed its MLB deal domestically, but Corona takes on import rights. So for the first time, MLB is splitting the beer category with Anheuser-Busch InBev, MLB's most tenured corporate sponsor at 42 years renewing, while holding on to domestic beer, premium light beer, and hard seltzer marketing rights, and Constellation Brands is close to securing import rights for its Corona Extra brands. And a marketer is quoted as saying, for most of the bigger category deals now, it's about paying less and carving out the specific rights you need. So Corona gets to be the official cerveza and gets to uh, expand the appeal of Corona Extra and and be the big import beer here. It already had some local MLB team sponsorships, but evidently this is a trend of sorts to segment these things, to split the categories. So MLB gets two top beer brands with big marketing budgets instead of one. And that is uh, something that is happening more and more now. And Evidently, like teams have split the beer category between domestic and foreign, but it doesn't generally happen for large sports properties, although evidently the NFL divided its malt rights between Miller and Anheuser-Busch in the 1980s. So probably more than anyone wanted to know, but hyper-segmentation in sponsorships is a trend, and this is maybe pushing it a bit further So MLB always on the cutting edge when it comes to lining up as many sponsors as possible for everything. But it's a little more complicated than we made it out to be. And it is, in fact, surprising that this has happened. Wow. I mean, and then you just ask yourself, like, at what point does it is it diluted to the 
to the point of being completely useless to them from a marketing perspective. And I asked mm-hmm. that question knowing that it's fairly useless now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But what a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh and Burkhard mentions that perhaps trying to market Budweiser to Latino fans or to import lovers wasn't a particular efficient use of their resources. So ABI is happy to cede that ground perhaps to Constellation brands and reinvest those marketing dollars and cutting back on advertising evidently is something that big brands have been doing to protect their profits in Mm. the current inflationary environment at least in the beverage industry. So they can't make bottles and cans and barley cheaper, but they can cut ad spends at least. So it's part of that trend. Anyway, thanks to Burkhard, there's uh, always an expert on every topic that we inexpertly discuss. And I like to be schooled on these things. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, we will take a quick break and we will be back with listener and Patreon supporter Stefan Lund to answer your emails and do a stat blast. are back and we are joined now by Effectively Wild listener and Patreon supporter Stefan Lund, who has been at the Mike Trout tier of Patreon support for the past couple of months and thus is entitled to join us on this episode and is welcome on this episode as well. Stefan, welcome to the show. Hi guys, it's, it's great to talk to both of you. So I know that you've listened to some of our previous Patreon guests, so you know how this goes. My standard first question is, how did you find the podcast and what possessed you to support us at the level that entitles you to come on the show? And I believe that you maybe have a similar answer to the second part of that question as our last guest, Kevin Bratzman, who got this as a gift for Christmas from his partner, which maybe that's a popular thing now. Maybe that's going around. I support it. Yeah, actually, in, in more than, in more ways than one, actually. I, I uh, like Kevin, I also found the podcast in 2016, and I also got uh, this particular appearance as a uh, Christmas present from uh, my fiance and em- Emily in this case. Love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, her only other condition besides, you know, of, of the present was was telling Meg what a what a big fan of hers she is. So <laughs> not 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 a not a listener all the time, but she loves your Twitter. So there's that. Uh, <laughs> well, if she's around, she's welcome to hop on the mic yeah. and tell Meg herself she funded this whole thing after all. So, <laughs> she did. thank you to to Emily. And uh, when is the wedding? Do you know? Uh, it's next April. So right. April of 2023. Cool. Well, congratulations yeah, yeah. in advance. Hope it all goes smoothly. Yeah, so how did you come across Effectively Wild back in 2016? Oh uh, yeah. So that's, uh, I was, uh, I'd kind of, uh, I'd kind of fallen out of my, fallen out of my baseball fandom for a bit. I wandered from the, wandered from the church, so to speak, for a couple of years. And I was graduating from college and about to move back to Minnesota, and I uh, where I'm originally from, and and I wanted to get back into my old Twins fandom, and so I think I just searched baseball podcasts, <laughs> Apple Podcasts. I'm not totally sure what came up, but the thing I distinctly remember was uh, I think it was episode eight sixty three that you did with um, uh, Aaron Gleeman and Alex 
Remington, I want to say, you know, Twins guy and Braves guy, because mm. uh, both of them had started the 2016 uh, season 0 and 9. Right. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> I went back and listened to that recently, and, and, and uh, you all had a debate over um, over which team was more depressing, uh, and it came out it came out Braves. <laughs> and yeah, did, uh, I'm gonna go on a limb and say that the Twins have had the worst of it. Yeah, over the last six years, are probably at least that season, right? The Braves won 68 games, the Twins won 59 games that season, and I guess the Braves have probably had it better since then too. I don't remember the Twins winning a World Series since then. Uh, yeah, let alone a, a playoff series, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or a playoff game, yes. But us debating, what is the sadder thing? That sounds like us. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Well, glad you found us, even if that was why. So tell us a little bit about your Twins fandom and why it was lapsed for a while and how you came back and I guess how excited you are about Carlos Correa. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so uh, start with the I probably I first saw the Twins in 2001 when I was six or seven years old and I was, you know, they were they were real good for the first half of the season, then kind of collapsed down the stretch. So then I picked up uh, in 2002 with, um, you know, they won their first uh, uh, division, you know, division championship in a good decade or so, and and uh, you know drafted Joe Maurer and all that. So so I was uh, I was kind of on the bandwagon from you know seven eight years old. Of course, as I just mentioned, that 2002 was the last time they won a a <laughs> a, a, a playoff series. So yeah, great time. Uh, yeah, exactly. So the last last two decades, you know, most of my life has been, you know, kind of spent in the wilderness. But uh, yeah, so I, I was, uh, you know, I was a pretty active fan through most of my childhood. I went to game 163 in 2009 with a friend that was, you know, amazing and all that. But just, you know, I got into high school, not a, you know, not a ton of my friends also followed baseball. I, you know, I stopped playing, I picked up lacrosse and Nordic skiing and just kind of fell away from it. You know, the twins also weren't very good. Uh, that that probably helped. And by the time I picked it up again, I mean, you know, by, you know, by the time I picked it up again, they were, uh, as I said, they, they lost 103 games that year. So it's not like I stayed away for the <laughs> entire Doltros. <laughs> not a complete fair weather fan or anything. But yeah, like I said, I, I was moving back to Minnesota after being away from college. I want to, you know, get back into something that I'd, I'd, I'd loved before. And so, you know, I've, I've found your your podcast, and it was sort of a um, immersion experience for learning a foreign language or something. Because you know, I've, I've, I've been a stats kind of kid. I had, you know, a ton of baseball cards and, then, you know, a bunch of, you know, notebooks full of my hand-calculated, like, home runs per at-bat for the 1987 <laughs> Giants or whatever the hell it was. But uh, but I never really got into the sabermetric side of things. So, so listening to your podcast religiously was sort of a way to, you know, dunk myself headfirst into, into uh you know, baseball in the in the modern day, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I guess Correa's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe better days ahead. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you know, it's it was it was a maddening month to be a Twins fan. They got I they bet. got. <laughs> Exactly. They got they got Kyder Falefa on my birthday, so I spent my whole birthday being like, "Oh, they got this this weird guy with a you know a bit of a catcher. It looks like a pretty good shortstop, maybe. Like this this could be this could be really interesting." Of course, I flipped in the next day, and like you know we we all like Mitch Garver down here, and um, not that we don't like Ryan Jeffers, but you know losing Mitch Garver wasn't uh, particularly fun. Uh, but also you know then they just didn't have a shortstop, and so you're sitting around you know waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know. After after they did all this trade so quickly, you kind of expected that to maybe come a little bit sooner. And and you know, all this all this is going down. My my sister was in town. I was trying to explain to her like that. I was kind of just on tender hooks, like checking the internet every so often, like what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And finally, we get up one morning, and, and you know, she you know 
you know, she sees me and me and Emily like talking up a storm about something, and she's like, "So this is the other shoe, right?" And I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the other shoe. It's a really big shoe." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh. I think that those kinds of moments are some of the hardest for fans because you you know you know that they are dependent on so many other people whose interests are not necessarily aligned <laughs> with your favorite teams doing the thing that they need to in order for what they're doing to make any kind of a sense, right? Like it, it, it's either a free agent really deciding, yeah, I do want to live in the Twin Cities for half the year or another team, you know, facilitating a trade. So those are those are some of the worst moments because it's very much out of your control. I mean, you're a fan, so it's always out of your control, but the, your proxy is not in full control either. <laughs> right. And outside of baseball, you are studying American history. You told me you are finishing up a dissertation now. And if you want to share the topic, you can, or your hopes after that. Do you plan to teach, or what are your aspirations? Yeah, that's a good question that I've been I've been rolling around in my mind. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I'm doing. I'm a I'm a graduate student studying the American Civil War at the University of Virginia, which is where I am now in in, in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm almost done. We're uh, pretty set on moving back to Minnesota, which is not only where I'm from, but where Emily's from also. So uh, that does a little bit restrict, you know, whether or not one goes into into academia. So I've been looking around at uh, a couple other options. So I haven't I haven't settled on anything yet. Believe it or not, finishing up the dissertation uh, takes up a lot of one's time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So. Yeah, I did uh, not attend grad school, and and that was one reason why. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't finish my PhD, and that was one reason why. <laughs> right. Well, the topic you said is uh, censorship of the press during the Civil War. So that sounds interesting to you and to me, I think. Right, yeah. and uh, maybe also relevant in some ways today. So, good luck with the dissertation and with the wedding and with the twins. Yeah, thank you for all those fronts. There, it's it's certainly relevant. A good bit of it has to do with mob violence, and sometimes I wish that was less relevant. But uh, <laughs> to Charlottesville, for instance, yeah. Well, yeah, I I arrived uh, in town three days before that all went down, so that oh, was a gosh. hell of an introduction. Wow. <laughs> Man. All right. Well, <laughs> let's well, that's answer. Cheerful some... note. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, answer some emails. So. Excellent. Some very fine emails. So this is uh, an email from, well, you know what? Actually, before we get to some emails that were submitted, I have an email to post to you. Essentially, let's pretend that I sent this as an email, which is what is going on in this line from Billions? And I will just set up this clip. So I was watching Billions the other day, as I still do for some reason. We're in season six now. This was episode nine of season six, an episode called Hindenburg. And for people who aren't aware, and maybe that's for the best, Billions is a Showtime show that is basically about people who make a lot of money and people who are mad at them for making so much money and try to stop them from making money, but mostly fail. And it was a famous early on for having Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti going toe-to-toe. Damian Lewis has since left the show and has been replaced by Corey Stahl, who is the new very rich person who Paul Giamatti is trying to take down constantly. So it's kind of this uh, vengeance and rivalry and lots of uh, corporate intrigue. But also... It is primarily a means for the creators of Billions to make references to things that they care about. So Billions is a baseball show. It's primarily, though, I would say a basketball show and a boxing show and a classic rock show and like gangsters I've never heard of show. You basically have to just 
Google constantly while you're watching Billions because every character in Billions, instead of speaking in lifelike dialogue, just tries to shoehorn in references to the creators at Billions' favorite musical artists or movies or whatever. It's very strange. There is an entire website called The Billions Companion that just like explains what the characters in Billions are actually referring to at any given time. And you kind of need that hand-holding. So... It has come up on the podcast before, way back on episode 808 and 809. Sam and I talked about an earlier baseball reference on Billions. This was in season one, I think episode three, where Bobby Axelrod, who was Damian Lewis's character, cites Brian Doyle's career batting average. That is former Yankees utility player Brian Doyle. But for some reason, they misquote his career batting average. So... Axelrod says that his average is 161. In actuality, his career average was 168. And so Sam and I puzzled over, well, why would you go to the trouble of mentioning Brian Doyle and his 160-something career average and then not get the last numeral right? Yeah. So we puzzled that out for multiple episodes, I believe, and I forget what conclusion we came to. But this is in the same genre. So I've sent you to this clip, and I will now play it for our audience. It's just about 10 seconds long. It'd also be a shame to lose our comer, as in one making rapid progress and showing promise. You know, I have been starting to feel it lately. Like Otani in year two in the majors, just hitting my stride. Okay, so what's happening here, the first voice you hear is from Taylor, one of the rich people on the show at the big scary hedge fund private equity place. And they are saying that, uh, you know, this person who uh, the second voice you hear is the actor Dhruv Maheshwari, who plays a trader named Tuck Lull. And basically, Tuck Lull and another character are thinking of leaving the company to go work for another company. And so in this scene, they are found out as they are about to leave. And so they are convinced to stay. And Taylor says, it'd be a shame to lose our comer, as in one making rapid progress and showing promise. And then... Tuck Lull says, as you just heard, you know, I have been starting to feel it lately, like Otani in year two in the majors, just hitting my stride. And initially, I was thrilled to hear a Shohei Otani reference. Just his name makes me smile, and to hear him in the show was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, instead of like obscure college basketball players or something, or obscure to me at least. But then I started thinking, does this actually make any sense, this reference? Otani in year two in the majors? just hitting his stride that's not when otani hit his stride no in fact you could say that he hit his stride immediately right i mean he was good basically from the get-go in 2018 with the angels and then he got hurt but year two in the majors for him was 2019 and that was not when he was hitting his stride he didn't pitch in 2019 and he hit worse in 2019 than he had in 2018 and he didn't even play that much more so that's just not right right i mean if you want to say that he didn't hit his stride until this past season that is his fourth season in the majors so i can't really come up with a way in which second season actually makes sense here and i don't know whether this makes any sense to either of you no, it doesn't because <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Like, it, imagine that they only care about him as a hitter for a moment, right? Like, we could just pretend that that's a thing that they only care about. It doesn't make sense even if all you care about are 
traditional stats, right? Like when you first posed this to me, Ben, I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe even though this is a show about like highly analytical people involved in complex financial transactions, like maybe they're, (laughs) maybe they're, uh, you know, they're only like traditional triple slash line people or something like that. But it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense under those confines either because he, you know, like, I guess he had one point of batting average better in 2019 than 18, but like the rest of his line was yeah. worse. Yeah. He was literally rookie of the year. Right. <laughs> like... In 2018. Like he, you know, he hit more home runs that year. He, yeah. he walked more. Like maybe they only care about strikeout, right? I don't know. It's like maybe they like lost track of him. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I guess you could say like in universe, if you want to come up with that sort of explanation, as opposed to just, well, the writers messed up here, then you could say that this character, Tuck Lull, like paid attention to Otani initially, but then like didn't pay close attention. Like, maybe he's just not a baseball fan. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like vaguely following Otani's career and he thought it was his second season. I mean, I guess that could be the explanation, but that's just not very satisfying. No, it's not. (laughs) What year is it in the show? I think it's present day. I don't don't know that it specifies, but it's it's basically now. So, but it doesn't even really matter when the show is taking place. The only explanation I could come up with is like if this is referring to his NPB career, like like Japanese majors. I mean, that is the major leagues over there, and he did kind of hit his stride in his second season in NPB. I mean, it wasn't his best season, but it was a big stride over his rookie year. But that seems like a stretch. I mean, you wouldn't assume that characters in the U.S. are talking about his second season in NPB unless they specified that. So... I don't know. I mean, I applaud having Otani references anywhere, of course, but this is another example of, hey, call us, right? Like, you know, right. <laughs> we're available to consult. I, I don't know. Stefan, you, you got anything here? Short answer, no. <laughs> Long answer, I mean, it's a part of me, I feel like the in the majors part of that sentence felt awkward to me. So I feel like they must mm. mean the actual major, like... Yeah. Like you, you, you I, I, it feels awkward in the first place because you say their second season, you kind of just assume in the majors. Like you say, this is going to be like Kellenic's second season, right? You, you don't think like, oh, but what about Double A or something? Right. Like, you're yeah, not, no. <laughs> yeah, you're not saying yeah. his second year as a pro, right? Mm-hmm. So my best, my best. I mean, I, I, I think the, I think the idea that like this particular character just isn't the biggest baseball fan, and Otani is the player that he knows might just make the most like in universe sense. <laughs> yeah. Another, if I had to stretch it, it's maybe like he only cares about him as a two-way player, and see, since he threw all of right. like two innings in 2020, that like 2021 is his second season as like fully formed, like fully operational Destar Otani. Yeah. Okay. But like that's I, like I'm I'm stretching here. I, yeah. I don't actually believe what I'm saying. Because <laughs> then you'd have to. I think then you would have to. You'd expect them to specify. Like his MVP season, or mm-hmm. it's just—it's yeah. deeply strange. Yeah. It's weird. It's yeah, he I won mean, Rookie of the Year, <laughs> right? That's right. The thing. I mean, there are many examples you could come up with of yeah. players who blossomed in their second season. Maybe they wouldn't be as famous or as topical as Otani, but you know, maybe they're just like, well, we have to appeal to a mainstream audience here, and they've only heard of so many baseball players. Not that that stops the writers of billions from just cramming in like the most esoteric references that they possibly could so this is not a show where i would think 
think like, oh, they can only refer to a limited number of baseball players. Again, they literally referred to Brian Doyle. So I just I don't know why you would pick Otani to say this is the example of someone who like hit his stride. Like he was awesome. Like I I remember I blogged about him like in literally like his first week in the majors, I think, because he had like an incredible start. Right. He had like a one more week, like a week or two into his career. He was great right away. And then, yeah, ultimately he got hurt and and he wasn't pitching for the end of the season, but it just, it doesn't fit. So all we can say to bail out the writers, I think, is that uh, this character just is not that plugged into baseball, but that is not a fulfilling explanation to me. So (laughs) I just, I don't know how these things don't get fact-checked like if i wrote this in a ringer article yeah people would like look up his baseball reference page and say like well what do you mean his second season like this was his fourth season and he was good in his first season and that's a ringer article this is a showtime tv show that will be watched by millions of people and has a lot of people behind the scenes with the production so i just i don't get how it happens exactly i never got an answer i don't think about the brian doyle thing that i could see maybe it's a slip up maybe the actor says the wrong number and it's not worth reshooting the scene when you realize i don't know but this this must have been in the script so i just i don't get it Hmm. well maybe maybe he was meant to say a different year and so maybe the actor did just flub it and they were like man whatever yeah, but it, if he's trying to come up with an example of someone who, like, hit his stride at a certain yeah, point, then right. Otani just doesn't fit, really. So, yeah. eh, all right. Well, I think, Stefan, your explanation is probably <laughs> the best other than the just in-universe one, just the idea that, well, it was his second season as a full-fledged two-way player. I guess there's that, but we're stretching here, so. Yeah. That's been weighing on me. Just wanted to share (laughs) the burden with everyone. (laughs) Okay. All right. Here's a question from Dennis who says, MLB hasn't seen a team captain since David Wright and Adrian Beltre retired in 2018. The last captains before them were Jeter and Canerco in 2014 and then Veritek in 2011. I guess I should mention that Brandon Belt is like kind of the captain yeah. of the Giants. Like he named himself the captain and it's like kind of tongue in cheek. And I don't know whether it's like official or not, but he's kind of been calling himself that. All right. Continuing. Why are captains so rare in baseball? Is it related to the fluidity of rosters? Does it seem duplicative of the union rep position? What makes an official team captain anyway? Is it more official to be voted on by the players versus knighted by the organization? Might organizations be reluctant to elevate a player to that status for some labor-related reason? So why don't we see captains more often in baseball? Or I guess we could ask the question, why do we see captains elsewhere? (laughs) Maybe having captains at all is the strange thing. I have a theory. Okay. I think that... Part of it is just the inertia of tradition and other sports like have team captains who I think players vote on. I mean, I'm sure there's feedback from the coaches, but like in football, I think that they vote and there are multiple captains in those sports, right? They tend to have like a captain, like the quarterback is almost captain. Right. Well, and like in in football, like the quarterback is almost always a captain and then you Mm -hmm. will generally vote for a defensive captain and also a special teams captain. So you'll see multiple guys with patches. And I think some teams are like very loosey-goosey about it they have like a lot of they're Mm -hmm. lousy with captains Mm -hmm. which makes it interesting because my theory about why we don't see it in baseball more often is that i think that there's a not division in like an acrimonious active sort of way but there is i think a clear delineation often between 
pitchers and position players on mm. teams. Mm-hmm. And so even though there are guys who are sort of viewed as clubhouse leaders and they very well have the, might have the respect of a reliever here or there or whatever, I think that there is enough of a split in those units that sometimes having sort of an, a unanimous captain is maybe a little harder to reach. And so they should just vote for a, a, a pitcher captain and a position player captain and then call it good. And then they could mm-hmm. have captains if they wanted to. But <laughs> yeah. also just like, does it come with responsibilities being a captain? Like in football, you just flip, you go out for the the, the coin flip. <laughs> right. I don't think you yeah. have jobs after that. Like it doesn't come with chores. Yeah. Well, my theory, I think, is that in MLB and baseball, the manager fulfills most of the roles uh, of the captain in other sports. Like yeah. as I understand it, the captain in hockey is like a real thing because it's the person who is authorized to speak with the refs regarding like rules interpretations when the captain is on the ice or if the captain is not on the ice then the alternate captain can talk to the ref about the rules and in baseball the manager just comes on the field right which cannot happen in hockey because uh, (laughs) the head coach is you know wearing uh, dress shoes and it's icy out there right so I think That could be it because like if you look back, I I believe in early baseball history, like 19th century, it was common or or standard for there to be baseball captains. But I believe at that time, the manager was not supposed to interact directly with the umpires like they were not supposed to come on the field. They just had to sit on the bench and be quiet, (laughs) I think. And that changed at a certain point. And so once you had coaches, once you had managers and they could just argue with the umpire themselves, then I don't really know what you need the captain anymore for. It's just sort of a symbolic leadership position, basically. And then maybe your theory about it being harder to have a a unifying force in a baseball clubhouse or, you know, like a acknowledged leader, maybe that comes into play there too. But I think just practically there's less use for one in baseball. And then, I read at least like on the the captain in hockey Wikipedia page that uh, there is a role or at least there has historically been one for communicating players' wishes to management, let's say. And so maybe that is, as Dennis asked in the question, you do have team reps, right, and union reps. And so maybe they fulfill that role too. So. I kind of doubt it's like uh, teams suppressing captaincy so that like you don't have to pay captains more or something like that. I mean, I, I kind of doubt it's that. I think it's just that it's sort of a vestigial position in baseball more so than other sports. And I guess it's the same with football to some extent. I mean, you still have your head coach just on the sidelines, right? I mean, they might right. have a headset and they might yell a lot, <laughs> but they don't just like walk on the field and coach players during the game. And that is kind of the case for all the other sports except for baseball, which is the sport where the manager for some reason wears the uniform mm-hmm. and just walks out there whenever he feels like it. Yeah. You have a guy in football who's responsible for making sure that the coach doesn't enter the field of play often because sometimes they're bad at it. And then someone Mm -hmm. has to tell Pete Carroll and Sean McVay, you can't be on here so much. We got to hold you back. Mm -hmm. I can see the virtues of the football approach as far as they just have so many people on those teams and they they do entirely different jobs, which kind of gets what Meg was saying about you just have pitchers and position players and they don't. I mean, they're on the field at the same time, obviously, sometimes, but like they just do different jobs. So, right. you know, 
I, I agree. I don't, you know, I, I always thought it was weird when other teams had, maybe I, maybe I wouldn't think it was so weird if I'd been a fan of a team that had a formal captain, but mm-hmm. it was just seemed kind of odd when other teams did because I didn't really get right. what they do. Right. Yeah. It's kind uh, of pompous. <laughs> it's like, oh, the Yankees I mean, yeah, have a captain or we're the Yankees. So the captain. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of silly. I, I guess like if there's a tradition associated with it, with that team, then it's nice if you're anointed the captain and there's yeah. a legacy of captains. I mean, that's something that other sports have like with uniform numbers right like in in soccer for instance like there are these legendary uniform numbers that like have to be bestowed on people and i guess npb has that also for like aces there's a a uniform number that aces will tend to have we don't really have that in mlb but i i kind of like that so maybe captains could serve that purpose but yeah i don't know there's also just like a lot more player movement these days than there used to be and so there are fewer players who are really long tenured with any one team which could discourage captaincy but growing up as a hockey fan as a kid i did think it was kind of a cool thing just like the c and the a on the chest and like knowing which players were which like i used to memorize like who's the captain of this team who's the alternate captain of this team i thought that was kind of cool i don't know that i even knew what the point of captains were but i still kind of thought it was nice to have that little visual denotation of who was captain so yeah it can be cool i guess but in baseball i just don't think it serves the same purpose it does make it kind of surprising that Jeter was uh, differentiated in that way on a team where they won't even put the names on the back of their jerseys. <laughs> right, yeah. All right, here's a question from Greg, who says, I recently watched the new John Boyce video about Dave Steeb, and it got me thinking about the weird run from 1974 to 92 when relievers won eight Cy Young Awards and even three MVPs. Voters have gotten smarter, though are still imperfect, and a reliever has not won the award since Eric Gagne did in 2003. Since 2003, the best reliever seasons by Fangraphs war was Liam Hendricks in 2019 with 3.8. He did not receive any Cy Young votes. While recognizing that voters typically don't use Fangraphs war to determine their Cy Young votes, at least with relievers maybe, I'd like to pose the question, what do you believe a reliever would have to do in 2022 or in any future season to win the Cy Young? Particularly if this is a modern one-inning reliever who might occasionally get more than three outs in a game, to take it even a step further, what would it take for a reliever now to win MVP? So can this happen again? I'm not sorry that this era is over, but could it come back somehow? I feel like if I had to make an argument for this, it would be based on win probability added, probably. Like, mm-hmm. like if you if you I mean, if you were to make an argument for MVP and this particular reliever that we're imagining exists, you know, were to pitch just some incredibly valuable innings mm-hmm. for their team and maybe pitch a ton of them, then you might be able to make a plausible argument that the that, that the context of their contribution was so important that mm-hmm. their team wouldn't have been the same team without them and that that even a even a slightly less stellar performance in those situations might have you know might have might have really ruined them. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many people would be convinced by this argument. I think I'm creating an imaginary, like, you know, God reliever in my head to fill this role. Yeah. But that's that's what comes to mind first, and and even I'm not totally convinced by what I'm trying to come up with. <laughs> I guess that I'm more inclined to think there's a scenario under which this could sort of unfold, 
like sitting here in 2022 than I would have been 10 years ago. But we would need to see just because relievers are taking more and more innings and starters are going, you know, like less and less deep into games. But you would still need a pretty radical transformation of the way that we see pitchers used now, even with the understanding that we have of like leverage and the role that that plays in value and, you know, some of the value sets take that stuff into account. But I just think it would be like, I can think of a scenario where we would look to a team and say, wow, the relief core is what really did it for this team this year. Like if the Mariners had made the postseason last year, for instance, I think that we would have all acknowledged like that a really stellar performance from that bullpen unit is why they were there. That was why they were in the race to begin with. But I think it would be hard for us to have that thought and not attribute that success to more than one guy, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think it would be really hard. I mean, I guess you could have a reliever who is really superlative in long relief over the course of a season. But then it's like if they're able to do that with sufficient leverage for us to attribute team success to them, then why isn't that person just starting? So I, I don't know. I think it would be really, really hard if only because we end up having, even within the context of modern pitching usage, still having like really exemplary performances from starters. They should just have a reliever award. I mean, I think they do, but not one that yeah, the BBWA do. votes on, right? Like right. we should just have a reliever award because then we don't have to have this problem. Yeah. The only thing I can think is that if the Upper limits for innings pitched in a single season continue to fall right. if we're at the point where 200 innings is basically the max and maybe no one will even get there this year or soon enough. Then maybe if we have a reliever who comes along who is not Mike Marshall or anything, but just like a little more in that direction so that he has a rubber arm and is uh, pitching regularly and let's say, you know, the, the fabled 100-inning reliever comes back or something or not even 100, but... 80 or you know 90 or something and is just kind of like running out there constantly which again like that goes against what we've seen too because even relievers are generally pitching fewer innings and right. having more days off between appearances but if someone like that did come along and the difference in innings were not as great because you had starters topping out at 180 or 190 or something and then you have this reliever at 80 or 90 and the reliever is just spectacular and doesn't blow a save and barely allows any runs and the team squeaks into the playoffs. I mean, maybe, maybe that could happen. I think it would really have to be something unprecedented. I'm even yeah. remembering like Fernando Rodney, remember his 2012 with the Rays Yeah. when he had a 0.6 ERA, which was a record for some number of, of minimum innings. And he also had 48 saves and he pitched 74 and two thirds innings and he finished fifth in AL Cy Young voting and was 13th in MVP voting. Now, that was a decade ago, so things have changed and probably made that even harder now, although that was after, like, Felix winning the Cy Young, so things were already changing at that point. Right. But if you did even better than Fernando Rodney, like, if you had a season where you just, like, didn't give up an arm run or something, like, you just have, like, a zero ERA, then maybe, like, the stats would just be so flashy on a rate basis and... It's hard because, like, you even it's rarer now to have assigned closers who are getting all the saves and everything. Right. And, 
But I think, yeah, if you just like ran the table and just like didn't give up a run, which would be like pretty impossible. But if you somehow did that even over 60 innings or something and you never blew a save and it were important and you had the high leverage and the win probability added and everything, then maybe. And it would help if there weren't some dominant standout pitcher Cy Young candidate too. Right. Like, so I think last year is actually a really good way for us to illustrate how difficult this would be. So like DeGrom through 92 innings of 108 ERA ball, he had a 1-2-4 FIP. He was worth almost five wins by Fangrass version of four, which is FIP-based. And he received one fifth place Cy Young vote. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I think you'd absolutely have to cross the 100 inning threshold. And maybe you interpret those 100 innings differently if it's someone who is understood to be a reliever versus a starter who just got hurt. But like, if voters aren't looking at DeGrom and what he was able to do in around 100 innings and saying this is worth more than one fifth place vote, I think you're really going to struggle to have someone who isn't in a starting role like shine enough to, to merit a push. I think it would take a, a pretty big sea change in the way that we see pitchers deployed and voters think about it because... Gosh, we spent an entire day freaking out about Corbin Burns. Like a whole day of our lives just spent freaking out about Corbin Burns only throwing 167 innings last year. So, uh, you know, it's just like I think it would be it would be tricky. Although I guess I'm looking at the Cy Young voting on the AL side, and I guess Rossi Iglesias got a vote. That's crazy. Yeah, okay. Who did that? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have some smarts for you. That's surprising to me. All right. Well, I'm not eager for this to happen again, so I'm fine if it's really difficult now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would take something really spectacular and pretty unprecedented, I think. All right, Rowey says, Why are innings pitched still shown with a base three decimal point? For a sport so statistically inclined, it feels a bit odd to stick with, say, 143.1 to convey 143 and a third innings. I do actually prefer the traditional way, but has there been any exploration of why it stayed that way even during the analytics revolution? And I could call Meg onto the carpet here because Fangraphs does this too. And well, we're I will not say, cons- you should call me to the carpet for not being consistent, actually. Uh, okay. Because <laughs> I kind of let, I tend to like, let people do a bit oh, I don't this. mean in, in text even. I mean like in leaderboards and, oh, and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I we mean, definitely do it in leaderboards. Yeah. And it's, it's a, you know, this is a, a small little thing that most people probably wouldn't care about, but it has been the bane of my existence at times because I'm trying to work with spreadsheets or export certain yeah. things from Fangraphs or Baseball Reference or wherever. And you have the innings column and it exports as, you know, whatever point one, whatever point two, whatever point three. And if you want to actually get the true innings total, then you have to go in and replace those in some way so that instead of point one for one out, one third of an inning, you have point three three or, you know, point six seven for point two instead, right? And that can screw up your denominator basically if you're doing certain kinds of calculations. So yeah. It is a, a very limited subset of the audience that probably finds this to be an annoyance, and I'm sure that most people understand exactly what it means. <laughs> if you're looking up something on fan graphs, you know that it's not a tenth of an inning. It is a third of an inning. It's one out, and that's just the convention, and you grew up used to it that way, right? You see it in box scores, et cetera. So it's a small thing, but I do wish, I guess, at least when you were like export or something, that it would maybe convert it in some way, just for the convenience of those of us who are crunching the numbers from time to time. Yeah. I mean, Sa- Saber agrees with you, at least from a 
copy perspective, right? Because the Sabre style guide's preferred usage is 1-3, for writing it out. But um, I don't know. We're slow to change. Yeah. When was the last time you updated your security settings on your computer? <laughs> yeah. Do I have security settings on computer? I don't, I don't know. know. But yeah, I mean, right. It's just we get by and, and everyone knows what you mean. And unless you are actively working with these numbers in some way, then it's not a problem for you. And that's just a, a small portion of the audience. But you know, it's a, a little, I don't know if I'd even elevate it to the level of pet peeve. It's it's a peeve, I guess. It's a it's a modest minor peeve for me. A modest peeve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Understated peeve. Yeah. Demure and, peeve. And I don't know like why it stayed that way. Probably just inertia, just because it was that way. But I guess like if you wanted to be precise, then it would take up a little more room because you'd have to go out to a second decimal place and maybe it looks a little less clean too. And then, you know, if you have that column going out to two decimal places, then why isn't this other column going out to two decimal places? So it might seem sort of inconsistent. So it's probably just a space and cleanliness kind of aesthetic thing or just no one caring about it particularly because no one's really getting confused about what it means. But yeah, I mean, even if you were to round, I mean, I guess you could round, right? Because sometimes you might see that like a 0.3 or a 0.7 for two thirds of an inning, right? Which is not completely precise, but it's closer than 0.2. So even that I would applaud, I think, if you were to make that change, I would be in favor of that. Like even if you don't want to inject fractions into the equation or multiple decimal points maybe just uh 0.3 and 0.7 instead yeah i can i mean i can imagine how this started like i don't know it just you know it's a uh it's not like we have it's not like we usually have like one third and two third keys on right yeah. typewriters it's you know and like if you're printing it on a baseball card or in a i don't know it, I like you spend a lot of time on newspapers.com for my job and like mm-hmm. there's some really old papers that you know I could totally see you know the difference between one third and two third being pretty illegible yeah. at a certain point and then yeah then just inertia as you, as you say it's a you know perhaps a you know a peeve but not <laughs> enough of a peeve to anyone to like kind of overhaul everything that you know it's it's a I imagine it's a pretty simple like find and replace on a on a spreadsheet or whatever mm-hmm. you know right. so I, I feel like it might just be the, a weird middle ground where, like, yeah, it's not quite right, and yeah, it's a little annoying, but the solution is easy enough, even if it is a bit annoying, that it's not a big enough problem for anyone to try and overhaul and, and fix entirely whatever that fix would look like. Right. Yeah, I'm just looking at our leaderboards and, and realizing this is unrelated to the innings pitch problem. But boy, real estate is sure precious on the Fangraphs leaderboards these yeah. days. Yeah. We, we bag a lot in here. Yeah, right. So that's a reason, I guess, <laughs> that you're not sacrificing information for most of your readers. Yeah. Although I will point out that Baseball Prospectus does do 0.3 and 0.7. So I'm just saying keep pace with uh with the cutting edge here and i will not make this my main cause i have my hands full with the zombie runner and and many other pressing issues of the day but uh you know it's something i'd like to see so i applaud baseball prospectus for displaying it that way and uh you want to bring it up on a a future call with david appleman someday you know number uh 27 on your (laughs) list of priorities on the itinerary for that conversation then uh, i would not be sorry about that 
I will take it under advisement. <laughs> okay. Question from Aaron. There's a strange phenomenon in Major League Baseball right now. A lot of second basemen bat left and throw right, left-handed and right-handed. Matt Carpenter, Jazz Chisholm, Colton Wong, Rugnet Odor. I'm sure there are others. Obviously, you wouldn't play second base if you throw left-handed, and I assume a righty thrower batting left is the result of a switch hitter deciding at some point to just focus on the side with the platoon advantage. Not necessarily. There are a lot of reasons why you can end up that way, but... He says it's kind of weird how common it is, right? All that said, it seems like there should be a term for someone like that. We have southpaw for lefty pitchers, or in surfing, they have switch foot for people who can surf with either foot in front. But as far as I know, there's no baseball term for batting with a different hand than you throw with. What should we call it? He then continues in a parenthetical. It occurs to me someone could bat right and throw left but I don't know why you would decide to take the disadvantage on both sides. I'm not sure if there are any right-left position players in the majors. There are! Yeah, there have been. There are players who do this, and it's a, a small group. Most famously, Ricky Henderson, right? So Ricky Henderson was a righty batter, lefty thrower, and I think Ricky said that he just batted righty because everyone else was batting righty. <laughs> he just figured he should. <laughs> Ricky's kind of on his own wavelength sometimes, yeah. but... There have been some players and some good players who do that. Like, uh, you know, recently, like uh, Colin Calgill was was one of those guys. So I like that you left the door open for me to put this player on the list by saying some players and some good players, suggesting <laughs> that both bad players and good players can can count because like Evan White for the Mariners, uh, yeah. that's right and throws left. Right, right. Yeah, maybe that's his problem. I don't know, but... It's not his problem, but... <laughs> <laughs> there is a term for that, I think. Sometimes you hear them called wrong way guys. That's a kind of a, a scouty term. I or think. backwards so, guys. Yeah, wrong way or backwards guys. If you if you bat right and throw left, because uh, of course if you bat right, then you are getting the platoon advantage against fewer opponents. Right. And uh, you know if you if you're going to have the split handedness, then ideally it would be the other way. And I don't know. I texted Kylie McDaniel to ask, like, is there some secret scouting term for this? And he basically said, not really, that they're just called left-right, usually left-right guys, because uh, usually it's listed on the roster that way. Bat slash throws and left slash right is ideal, or I guess uh, switch hitting possibly could be ideal. Yeah. But if you're going to be split hand in this, don't be a wrong way guy. But I don't know that there is a better or more common term for it than just left-right. And if the opposite, if the reverse is the wrong way guy, I guess you could say it's the right way, <laughs> the right way guy. But that, I don't know. I mean, we already have like playing the game the right way as a cliche kind right. of, which could confuse you maybe. And who's to say there's a, a right or wrong way <laughs> to do this, but there are maybe more advantageous or less advantageous ways. But yeah, I, we could use a different term for this i think flip-flopper comes to mind flip-flopper yeah i like that yeah but see that invokes a switch hitter to me more Uh, Mm. yeah i could see that yeah i know that evan white has been referred to as a weird ass uh, in mariner's (laughs) fandom we just call him a weird ass so uh i affectionately refer to him that way i know that nathan bishop who used to run lookout landing refers to evan that way you know now it feels discourteous because he's he's injured again and i you know you got to be careful with your hyphenation when you're Mm. calling someone weird ass because otherwise you might be staking a claim to knowledge you don't have (laughs) right don't don't know can't 
candidly, how yeah. irregular the bottom may be. Right. But the bat left throw right is less weird. It's more common. Right. So I don't know. What what would that be? Like, I mean, you could just say split handedness or like not ambidextrous, but like semidextrous, semidextrous, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. I don't know. Uh, that's too bad a splitter is already a thing. That would right. be yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. It is too huh. bad. That uh, would be good. I can't. I can't tell you as a as a child baseball player and a, and a lefty. I always felt like the guys who did one thing right handed were sort of like betraying the cause or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know there's a lot of left handed <laughs> solidarity. But, um, well, it mattered to me a lot more as a, as a child. As a, I don't know, I played first base and it was like the only mm-hmm. position where that was a potential asset. Right. Right. Well, left-right players is fine, I guess. But if you can top that, listeners, please submit your nominations because I think we could do better. All right. Here is a question from Dan who says, The Cleveland Guardians have a brand new bespoke theme song carefully crafted by local musicians. According to Cleveland.com, on Wednesday, the club debuted We Are Cleveland, an upbeat driving rock track highlighted by its pulsating drumline, piercing guitar riffs, and soaring vocals. The track can be described as having a little bit of everything, but above all, it's 100% Cleveland. And Dan says, but is it a baseball song? It seems to have a little bit of everything except baseball, or even an oblique reference thereto. Are we absolutely sure it's not a roller derby song? The lyrics can be found, and then he links to the place where they can be found, which I will link to too, but he says, The closest thing I can find to a baseball lyric is, In this town, knock us down, we will always rise. This could refer to the cycles of tearing down and rebuilding, common to many small market teams, (laughs) but it could also refer more literally to roller derby. So I like Dan's theory that they just uh, stole this song the way that they stole the name Guardians from the local (laughs) roller derby team. But I'll play a, a short snippet of this song for our audience, and I will keep it mercifully brief so as not to subject you to the entire thing, though you are welcome to subject yourself to it if you're so inclined. Okay, so that's a little snippet of the song. Is it a baseball song? Not explicitly. I mean, it is by our standard definition in that it is now the theme song of a baseball team. But other than that, like it refers to the 216 family, which is the Cleveland area code. So it's a Cleveland song, sort of. It says Cleveland a lot. But no, nothing about it by my reading actually says anything specific about baseball. I find... I might be reading too much into it, but it's art, so you're supposed to interpret. (laughs) I do find it funny in a song that is about rebranding a team name that was like understood to be horrible that we never compromise, never apologize is a line in this song. That's neither here nor there, uh, but that is funny to me. Find that funny. Yes. I have enjoyed not the song. I do not care for the song. It's not very good. It's not very good. I have enjoyed the YouTube comments on the song. The top one, the most upvoted, says, We literally just wanted an outfielder in free agency. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's great. Yeah. I mean, I mean that was that was kind of my first thought too. It's like just like I mean, like you know, obviously like I'm not going to be the most sympathetic uh, uh, listener to it to a sure. Guardians theme song, but you know, I was more excited about citing Josh Donaldson than I would be about any song. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, it raises the larger question of, do we need sports team songs at all, really? Have there ever been good ones? (laughs) I mean, okay, there are a couple distinctive ones, at least. I don't know if they're good, but they've just been around for so long that, you know, you feel a fondness for Meet the Mets, let's say, right? But most of the sports team theme songs, including, like, Let's Get Metsmerized, just to stick with Met songs. I mean, all of the, like, early 90s, like, rap-style ones are just completely cringeworthy now, but also sort of fun in a way. But they're all pretty terrible. Like, never really do you hear a sports team theme song and go, like, oh, that's a legitimately good song. Like, I would listen to that song in a completely different context. I mean, a lot of the other YouTube comments are pointing out that, like, this is just going to sound great, like, echoing through the empty stadium as, like, no one goes to see Guardians games because they're not spending on that team and they trade all their good players. So it's also just, like, it's too intense for a baseball song. I mean, it's like... It's like an anthem. I mean, it's like you're supposed to be cheering this thing. I I could see it in soccer, maybe, but like baseball doesn't really have the tradition. And and I'm all for like team chants, but this just I can't really imagine like singing along to this. Like even if I were a Guardians fan, I I just I don't know what the point of these things is particularly. Uh, yeah, I think it's sort of like I think it's a little like nicknames where. And here we are having already discussed captaincy, but like, I think it's a little bit like nicknames in that you want something like this to be organic and you're never going to get that with like corporate PR. Like I, the, mm-hmm. the message I sent to you, Ben, offline before we started was like, why is this stuff always so cringe? <laughs> like it's yeah. just, you know, it would be one thing if like the fans in Cleveland in this sort of new chapter of Cleveland baseball, like had a song in a place mm-hmm. that literally has the rock and roll hall of fame. Right. <laughs> like we're like, this is our song. And then like they sang it and it was something that came from the fan base. But this is just always going to feel kind of manufactured. Like it mm-hmm. it because it literally is manufactured. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean I know every like someone has to write songs, right? If you're gonna have a song, you gotta write you gotta write a song. So I guess in that sense m- most music is manufactured, but this is not something that is a spontaneous expression on the part of the fan base to be like yeah here's our right. here's our understanding of our identity in this in this new chapter like that's just not what this is Stefan are you familiar with the fight song we're going to win twins Yes, I was. <laughs> I am familiar with this. They used to play it at the. They used to play at the Metrodome a bunch. I don't. You yeah. know, I'm trying to remember if I've heard a Target Field recently.
like, that wasn't trying to be a, a song, I never really took it, you know, like, it was just, like, a fun thing for them to play when they run out on the field, and I right. think the, the bar for that as an artistic endeavor is a lot, a lot lower. <laughs> but, but the thing I was going to say that kind of combines what I guess say that, you know, it's hard to, you want something kind of spontaneous, but also does combine a bit of the, the corporateness of it, I believe the wins for their like 1987 like you know world series like vhs that they sold or whatever mm -hmm. had it featured nothing's gonna stop us now by, by starship <laughs> and so that is a, a, an example i believe i have this right someone's gonna correct me i'm sure but that's an example of the, the team putting that out there you know putting a, a then a modern song to their you know to their to their baseball team but that's then kind of been reclaimed by Twins Twitter in the last couple of years, thanks to the like of, likes of Parker Hageman and to uh, mm. he'll just put that song on, you know, either Twins highlights or lowlights. The song works either way. Uh, <laughs> it's either kind of heartwarming or just like, yep, those are our bubbling guys. You know, so it right. kind of, you know, so this, that is an example of something that's originally out there as a like, we're going to you know, slap our corporate, you know, whatever on this. And has since been reclaimed by the fan base for like fun Twitter videos. So mm -hmm. it could happen. It just might take 30 years. Yeah. Right. There could be some value to just having a fight song that's like ironic. I mean, it's so bad it's good. Right. And maybe you can kind of recontextualize it. And I guess a team might put a song out there with that intent, but I don't know that that's what's happening here. And this is not like so bad it's good. It's just bad, I think. <laughs> so I don't know if it's bad in a fun way. Who knows? Maybe it'll catch on and we'll be proved wrong, but I don't see it. I mean, there are there are sports that have, you know, singing and chanting and stuff as part of yep. the, you know, the fan experience. And, and my understanding Even is baseball, that it, in I, I was going to say yeah. Korea, I think, mm -hmm. I say, and maybe other stadiums I'm not yeah, familiar Japan, with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I don't know. Like, if that was a bigger part of American baseball culture, I would, I would, I would happily engage in that. But mm -hmm. uh, that's not what this is. Yeah, I mean, to to have like a "You'll Never Walk Alone" style chant. I mean, I envy that when I see like soccer teams that have that happen. But again, it's it's kind of organic. I I think more so than just the team decided that this is our new song. So, yeah, I think that it needs to arise more naturally. Yeah, or like there are teams that will play, you know, they play music that is has some sort of local connection yeah. at important moments in a game. And that can feel cool. Like the Mariners played Jimi Hendrix song after they win, you know. So it's like mm -hmm. it is it is rooted in the place. You're able to identify it as having something to say that is also about the place it's from. But like First of all, like Jimi Hendrix famously wrote good songs. So like that's a big yes. difference. <laughs> and it isn't, you know, it doesn't feel forced in quite the same way that it that it would if it were something that like Mariner's PR had tried to write, which I don't mm -hmm. know, may, there might be some very talented songwriters amongst that PR stuff. I don't mean to yeah. denigrate that. If any team PR department could do this or team marketing department, it might be the Mariners. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, last one here. This is Matt, Patreon supporter, who says, hypothetical question, if the pitching rubber extended from first base to third base, how different do you think baseball would be? Would pitchers change up their starting location at the expense of a longer distance to throw the batter off? Would pitchers be positioned for defensive purposes? Would we see lots of pitching from the foul lines for dead pull hitters? My gut is that given how much velocity matters, most teams would stick with pitching down the middle, but you have crafty guys that get by with lower speeds, so maybe some would be able to make a career out of it. So 
the pitching rubber extends all the way from foul line to foul line instead of just being a little slap on the mound here. Where would pitchers stand? I, I mean, I was going to... He said, how would it change the, how would it change how pitchers pitch or how would it change the game overall? Well, both. Yeah. How different would baseball be? I was going to say ground ball pitchers are going to have an interesting time of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Would you fall down on your way to first base (laughs) if you're a hitter? Like, would you slip? I, well, that's a, yeah, that's a good question too. Maybe it's, is it a raised rubber still, but it extends across the entire. <laughs> that's what I was imagining. Yeah, you'd, you'd get all kinds of caroms that, yeah. yeah. That, Which would be cool. Don't get me wrong. I love this, but like, it would be very weird. People would trip. It would be carnage out there. Yeah. This is like not as bad as a pit potentially from an injury standpoint, but the next worst thing. So I think from a just pitching standpoint, I think even if you were, farther away from home plate you'd want to have a more like extreme oblique angle right i mean it would be pretty impossible now granted could you throw strikes if like if you still have to get the ball over the plate then you can't really do that if you're like pitching from over at the foul line Mm. it would just like the angles how are you actually going to (laughs) get the pitch over the plate without like beating the batter so I guess you, you couldn't stand all the way over, but I would think that you would want to move part of the way. Just, I mean, for one thing, you'd give hitters a worse look at the ball. I mean, it's why some pitchers will move from side to side on the rubber as it is, or they will stand on the extreme side of the rubber just to give hitters a worse look at the ball, depending on their handedness. So if you were to move even farther over, then yes, I guess the ball would have to travel a longer distance, but it would be tough to get a good look at it, and it would also be tough to get around on it, probably. I mean, you'd have to pull it. You'd you'd have to pull it, basically. And if you know that the person is going to pull, then you can move your fielders over there, and then that's the other advantage, as Matt was saying, that you'd have the pitcher who would be more in line to field these balls, which I, I guess it would place a greater emphasis on pitcher defensive skill but it would basically be like having a another infielder stationed at the place where the ball is going to go as opposed to up the middle so i think that would be an advantage although it, it would be like the new hot corner would be like the <laughs> the pitcher oh my like, gosh. there'd yeah. be even more injury risk so that would be an issue too so that might be a reason not to stand way over there but yeah i think you would move not all the way, but but a good portion of the way between the bases. Would they move back and forth during an at bat? Like, is oh, this going to add to time of game where like you're starting at third for like the first couple pitches and you right. walk across the diamond to pitch for the other side? Yeah, <laughs> Once I you mean, fall- from hand from batter to batter, you would probably. Yeah, yeah. And would it depend? Would you have to do it similar to like Pat Venditti having to declare a handedness before oh, yeah. the? <laughs> right. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is uh, probably something that would actually change baseball pretty significantly and probably not in good ways. No. <laughs> I mean, you just wouldn't get 6-3 grounders anymore, right? Like mm. they'd hit the I mean not in at least that we're what we're thinking of. Like it would hit the the rubber and it would carry them off somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And then it would just kind of be a free like I don't know. You I don't know if you'd see more or less double plays like you know, you're not going to get the hard ground ball that you can, you know, flip and turn around and turn a double play. Or maybe you catch people off base. It's like a line yeah. drive that hits the carom. Right. And they catch I mean, oh, yeah. 
the thing is, like, if the rubber extends, then does the mound extend? <laughs> this was going to be my next question. Because now, now you have to. Now I really want to know what this does to base running. Because you got to run up the little hill and then down the little hill. Right. Up and yeah. down. Up and down. Imagine trying to break for home. If the mound goes all the way through or to the baseline, it would be a disaster. There's, I, I would love though to be in the room when a sport that is like we must ban the shift tries to pitch this to the rules committee it's like yeah yeah get rid of the shift but as an aside maybe this gets rid of the shift right because the ball could carry him off of a mound that is extended all the way around crazy yeah if it were just a rubber that extended then the ball could go over that or or you could get a a hop that went over that but if if the mound extends all the way or you could make the pitcher choose between having a mound in the middle of the field or not having a mound but just having the rubber elsewhere so he has to pitch like off a flat ground but he gets to choose whatever angle he wants that might be a way to equalize things a little but again i don't know that i see any upsides here necessarily (laughs) so yeah yeah, this would be a instance where baseball would be different if it were different i believe dramatically so (laughs) yeah all right i will leave you with a quick stat blast Okay, so this stop list was not prompted by an email, but when we did our NL Central preview earlier this week, I just made an offhand comment about how much older Albert Pujols is than the new Cardinals manager, Ali Marmo, right? Because Albert Pujols is, uh, as far as we know, he is uh, listed at 42 years old now, and Ali Marmo is, what, 35, I think? So this is a, a pretty big gap, and it's funny because when they showed a video the other day of Pujols walking in from the bullpen and getting congratulations before a spring training game, he looked like a manager. I mean, he, he kind of had the manager build more than Ali Marmol does, probably. But this is a big gap, and it got me wondering, is this one of the bigger gaps, or is this the biggest gap in a long time? Because we have seen maybe a trend toward younger managers recently. I mean, I don't know. Managers used to be very young in the early days of baseball when everyone was a player manager or a lot of people were, and then that went out of vogue a little bit. And now, obviously, we haven't had a player manager Since the 80s, it's been decades, and as we've discussed, I don't think that that will be coming back anytime soon. On the other hand, you also maybe have aging curves changing a little bit differently and players not lasting as long in many cases. So I asked Ryan Nelson, frequent StatBlast consultant, to run the numbers here, and he did. Retrosheet made this fairly simple for him. And the difference between Pujols and Marmol is 2,359 days, so that's about six and a half years. But that is not unprecedented or even close to it in the grand sweep of baseball history. There have been 38 managers who have had players more than 2,359 days older than they were. And I think Ryan was able to do this like on a game log level and just look at the actual number of days different between them on any given game. 
But he notes most of those were in the age of the player manager and a long time ago. So if you only include duos where both manager and player were born in the 20th century, then only five managers have had a bigger gap. And there were some player managers involved there. So the number one answer, perhaps unsurprising, is Lou Boudreau, who was the youngest manager ever. And he was a player manager at the time. So Lou Boudreau became a player manager for Cleveland in 1942 when he was in his age 24 season. So as you would imagine, he had a bunch of older players and he was younger than a lot of his players, most of his players for many years. But the biggest gap was when he managed Joe Heving in Cleveland or Having. I don't know how you pronounce that, from 1942 to 1944. And the difference there was 6,162 days approximately 17 and a half years. So that is wow. the upper limit. The <laughs> other one, so Lou Boudreau was one of the five I mentioned. Marty Marion with the Browns in the 50s and Satchel Page, who was on the Browns at that time. And that was more a function of Satchel being <laughs> in advanced age. The difference between them at the most was 3,800 days. And that is a, about 10 and a half years or so. And then we have next Kevin Kennedy with Nolan Ryan on the Rangers in the 1990s. That was 2,672 days, which is uh, about 300 days more than the Pujols Marmal Gap. And then Renee Latchman with Gaylord Perry on the Mariners in 1980s was 2,423 days. And Joe Cronin with Lefty Grove on the Red Sox in the 30s and 40s. And the max there was 2,411 days. So... Pujols Marmol, not unprecedented, but it is the biggest gap since 1993, which was Kevin Kennedy and Nolan Ryan on the Rangers. So that satisfied my curiosity. It is indeed very unusual and hasn't happened for almost 30 years. So thank you to myself for the question this time and thank you to <laughs> Ryan for answering it. <laughs> Good job, self. You're so smart. <laughs> And thank you very much for joining us today, Stefan. This was fun. I know that people can find you on Twitter at SLundMN, I believe. And you also have a baseball blog where you have blogged about baseball at times. Yeah, I, I started that as a sort of, uh, I was feeling down and out of sorts about the dissertation, but I want to keep writing and researching. So <laughs> yeah, if you want to read, occasionally, I'd call it a bittersweet baseball blog. It's mostly like perfect games that were ruined by a home run in the first at bat or um, <laughs> uh, the, the case for retiring Brad Radke's number for being the best pitcher in a series of really, really uh, bad mm -hmm. uh, twins teams or uh, even just uh, the you know what's what's the worst quality start you can find that sort of thing. But yes. if you care to read that sort of thing, it's solohomer.wordpress.com. Cool. That's the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Brad Radke. I remember Sam doing a thing about how Brad Radke was like the or twins pitcher and like there was a whole tree of pitchers descended from brad radke and basically like all twins pitchers for a while other than like johan santana francisco liriano were basically brad radke reincarnated <laughs> he was just the template for the twins for years and years so yeah he was very good too yeah, you guys, you guys got off that easy. I would have easily hijacked this entire show. Talking about Brad <laughs> <Rice>. <laughs> but this became a minor. This I shouldn't say a minor obsession. I I basically 
gave up normal work for like a week writing about Brad Radcliffe. <laughs> See, this is disconcerting because you're taking time away from graduate work to write about sports on the side as a distraction. So in eight or nine years, you're going to be the host, co-host of Effectively Wild. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. Look forward to it. <laughs> Okay. Well, thanks again. And uh, again, good luck with the dissertation. And maybe you can make it a baseball dissertation. They played baseball during the Civil War. Maybe you can sneak in a a baseball reference somewhere in there. I'll do my best. There are a lot of footnotes and no one's (laughs) going to read them all. (laughs) That is also true for most of these podcasts. All right. Thank you, Stefan. Yeah, thank you, guys. Right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening, and thanks to Stefan for joining us today. He was telling us after we finished recording that his sister was questioning what qualified him to appear on this podcast. You know what qualified him? We can be bought. You can buy us off, too, just like Stefan did, or really, just like Emily did, who actually financed this operation. Don't all of you do it at once, because we can't do this every episode, but we do enjoy talking to our listeners sometimes. We are podcasters of the people. Our listeners play a huge part in the podcast, even when they aren't on it. But if you want to be, sign up for the Mike Trout tier on Patreon. Two final notes. I mentioned on a recent episode after the Phillies signed Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos that Jason Stark's article at The Athletic about their defense had quoted the Phillies' Charlie Manuel, former manager, current special advisor, as saying, If we hit, we'll field better. So the suggestion was that, hey, this is a bad defensive team, everyone's saying it, but Charlie Manuel is suggesting they'll hit so well that they will give themselves confidence and they will play better in the field. I noted that I had relayed a request to Russell Carlton of Baseball Prospectus to try to look into this, see if there's any truth to what Manuel said. And I don't know that Charlie Manuel actually believes this. Maybe he just needed something to say that would not be negative about the Phillies' defense. But Russell looked... He did the research, he adjusted for everything that you should adjust and control for, and I will read his conclusion here. I will also link to the article, quote, did success at bat lead to success in the field? Not really. Whether or not a batter got on base in the previous inning wasn't predictive at all of fielding outcomes. It didn't make players better or worse the next half inning. They were their normal selves either way. Maybe I need to look at this differently. What if one plate appearance isn't enough? I looked to see whether a player's OBP in their previous 10 plate appearances had any predictive power. Nope. Okay, maybe it's not an individual level effect. The Phillies certainly will hit this year. Maybe if the team scores a run or two or three in the previous half inning, there's a jolting effect on the whole defense in the next half inning, and they can ride that to better defensive outcomes. No, just no. It's the sort of thing that sounds like it could be true and maybe even feels like it could be true, but it's eyewash. Just because someone says something doesn't make it true, there's no cloaking this one. The Phillies defense is going to be awful. I am not surprised, but thank you to Russell for running the numbers regardless. And last thing, I saw this story shortly after we recorded, but apparently some minor leaguers who have wives and children and probably partners too are having issues with the new housing policy. So it's a good thing that teams are now obligated to provide housing for their minor leaguers. And for the most part, that has been an improvement and plenty of players seem to be happy with this new system. It tends to be team provided housing, like a dormitory style system. However, many of these players do not have a bedroom to themselves. They are sharing with another player. Fine if you're a 20-year-old in A-ball and you're on your own. Not so fine if you are married or you have a partner or you have kids and maybe they are intending to live with you. So good story from the AP about this. I will link to it on the show page. Hopefully teams will accommodate these players and their special circumstances. Not that special, not that uncommon, especially at higher levels of the minors where the players tend to be older. It sounds as if the teams just didn't think about this. It didn't consider the possibility that this might be a need of many of their players. Hopefully they figure this out. So I'm trying to put myself in the situation of some of these minor leaguers who are married or who have kids. 
and thinking about going and playing baseball without them for six or seven months, not ideal. Seems like there are ways around this, and the article even notes that in hockey in the AA equivalent of that sport, all players are guaranteed a furnished bedroom, married players are entitled to their own furnished apartments, other sports seem to have figured this out. Granted, there are more minor leagues in baseball that are affiliated with the parent clubs, but still. Better than no housing for anyone, that's for sure. But hopefully they can find a way to spend enough to have housing for everyone. And hopefully some of you are interested in supporting the Effectively Wild podcast on Patreon, as Stefan and Emily did. If so, you can go to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and sign up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep us going and help us stay ad-free and get yourself access to some perks. The following five listeners have done so. Tyler Nolan, Jim Stewart, Laura Peterson, Chris Drovell, and Stuart Verholst. Thanks to all of you. One of the perks you get as a Patreon supporter above a certain tier is monthly bonus pods from me and Meg, the most recent of which we posted just this week. There's also a great Discord group for Effectively Wild Patreon supporters only. You can all join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com and via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will wrap up the Division Preview podcast series with the AL East and NL East early next week. We will get those out to you by opening day, which, by the way, is next week. So enjoy that thought as you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you soon. This is your captain calling. This is your captain calling to tell you I'm out of my brain again. This is your captain calling. And if you think we're falling, you're perfectly right. And I'd be delighted if any of you could give us a hand and land the plane.